So today we're continuing our series through the book of Galatians. It's hard to believe that we're almost through chapter 2, but going slowly section by section through this book. And so just to kind of remind you where we are in the flow of the book of Galatians. Uh, We are in a section that has a thesis statement that's all the way back in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, where, where Paul says that he didn't receive his gospel from any man, nor was he taught it, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then everything that follows uh, all the way through chapter 2 is essentially him defending that bold, audacious claim that he didn't receive it from any man, but from a revelation of Jesus Christ. So first in chapter 1 he said, I didn't receive it from any man before my conversion because I was a zealous Pharisee who was persecuting Christians. And then he showed that he didn't receive it from any man immediately after his conversion, that he went away into Arabia for three years. He didn't consult with anyone. And then he traveled to Jerusalem, and he didn't receive the gospel from any man then, but he only met with Peter and James and only for 15 days. He didn't have time to to learn the gospel from them. And then last week we saw in chapter 2 how he went up to Jerusalem again, But he didn't receive the gospel from the other apostles. He had this conference with the other leaders of the the church, but they didn't explain the gospel to him, but he actually explained the gospel to them, (laughs) and they agreed that, in fact, they teach the same message, that they had received the same message from Jesus Christ, and that it's true and that it's authoritative. And so today we see this, this last installment of Paul's argument, and I read a really great summary of this passage that we'll look at in a moment, the main point. A commentary said that uh, the main point of this passage is that Paul had the boldness to rebuke Peter, demonstrating that the gospel functioned as an authority over Peter. And hence, Paul's gospel was not Paul's own personal opinion. It is the gospel at all times and in all places. So... With that in mind, as we, as we read Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And this is on page, I should know it, it's been the same page number the whole time, uh, 972 in the Pew Bible that's under your chair. So Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that the words of of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, 
our rock and redeemer. Amen. Now, hypocrisy can wreak major havoc in churches. I heard about a, a church recently. It was, it was planted maybe 10 years ago, started very small, just like this, and by God's grace, it, it grew and um, prospered. But then the, the pastor was, was harboring some secret sins that no one knew about, very grievous sins. And then eventually it all came out, and then everything just came crashing down. He was removed from ministry. A ton of people lost the church because they said, wow, this, this pastor, he's not behaving in step with the, the truth of the gospel. And so they found other churches, and there was just a smaller group left over. And then um, they struggled for a long time, but were extremely wounded by the whole situation. And then I, I, after the church closed, I heard that of the people who were left over, none of them were able to connect into another church after that. And so it's it probably, I'm sure some of them still would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they were just so wounded by the hypocrisy that they had seen that they didn't feel like the church was for them. And then other people were even saying, hey, maybe there's not anything to this Christianity that it claims to make a real difference in lives, but this is, the, this is what it looks like. This is the fruit of it. So hypocrisy, it's a terrible, terrible thing that it destroys lives, it destroys marriages, it destroys churches. But unfortunately, hypocrisy also isn't some rare disease in the church, that it's not something that, that only you know, one in 10,000 struggle, and, and then you have a special committee that studies it to, to figure out why this, this happens. But it's actually something that every single believer, to one degree or another, struggles with hypocrisy, that everyone who professes faith in Christ struggles to take the gospel that we know and love, and then to live out its implications faithfully in day-to-day -day life. And so it's really fair to say that every believer is a recovering hypocrite. And you, you may notice that that's the, the title, actually, of the, the message today. It's, it's hope for the recovering hypocrite. And that's what we see here in our passage from the book of Galatians. Hope for recovering hypocrite like Peter, like you, and like me. So to begin, what exactly is a recovering hypocrite? Well, he or she is a person who, who knows and loves the gospel, but then simultaneously misses practical implications of that gospel in day-to-day -day life. And this is what we see here in our text. The, the Apostle Peter, called by his Aramaic name Cephas, was a recovering hypocrite. And you, we know uh, from the rest of the New Testament that he knew and loved the gospel. If anyone knew and loved the gospel, it, it was Peter. Uh, and and it's, in some ways, he just, if you go and read the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, he just oozes and exudes this passion and love for Christ. I mean, he was the, one of the first people to say, you are the Christ, the, the son of the, the living God. He was passionate, even to the end. And of course, he, we, we know he struggled. He, he denied Christ three times. But even after that, after the resurrection, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And, and he says, yeah, Lord, you know that I love you, that I think that if, if you and I could love Christ and could love and know the gospel half as well as Peter, 
it, it would change our lives. It would be an incredible thing to have his kind of love and passion. Yet in our text from Galatians, we see him then missing practical implications of the gospel in the situation in Antioch. So look again at, at verse 11. So he's saying that on his second journey to Jerusalem, he and Peter got together and they agreed on the gospel, extended the right hand of fellowship. But when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, you'll see that this is taking place in Antioch. Antioch was really the first multicultural, multi-ethnic church in the ancient world. Uh, because in the Old Testament, God actually intended for his covenant people to remain ethnically, culturally separated from the nations around them. And you saw it even in their, their ceremonial laws that they couldn't eat certain foods that other people could eat. And we know how often, if, if you don't, can't eat with somebody, it's hard to build a relationship with them, right? That food has a huge impact on the kinds of fellowship that you can have. And so a, a faithful Old Testament believer wasn't to go out and fraternize with the surrounding nations. That, yeah, people could be brought in from the nations, but they were to remain separate. But then the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. That Jesus tore down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And so God's intention for the new covenant is to have this multi-ethnic, multicultural church that spans throughout the entire world. And God has been building that church for 2,000 years. And we're part of that. I mean, we're not part of the original culture that the Bible came to, that the gospel was first heard. But here we are in Garnet Valley, worshiping and singing praises to Christ. And the Apostle Peter was one of the first pioneers to recognize this reality. Uh, he saw the implication of the gospel, the idea that we're justified not by what we do, by what Jesus has done for us. He said that, yeah, this has implications for race relations in the church, the way we interact with people in the world. And so you can think about it like this. It, the, the logic is that if, if I'm united to Christ by faith, in part from anything that I've done, and this person over here is united to Christ by faith, then we, we have this incredible connection. We're connected to the same God. And so if we say we come from a different race, a different culture, a different background, a different ethnicity, those things don't ultimately matter. They pale in comparison. And so if God accepts somebody into heaven because they are trusting in Christ, then who am I to separate myself from them or say that I can't hang out with them for some reason? Now, Peter then, recognizing that reality, went and proclaimed the gospel to Gentiles before hardly anyone else. And we see that back in Acts chapter 10, that, that he went to Gentiles, he proclaimed the gospel to them. When they received the Holy Spirit, he baptized them into the church. And in Acts 11.17, Peter says, If then God gave the same gift, the Holy Spirit, to Gentiles as he gave to Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way of God? So he's saying, God is doing this. He's bringing Jews and Gentiles together. I can't stand in the way of this. And this is before what we read here in Galatians. And therefore, we're not surprised 
in, chap- in verse 12 when it says that he was eating with the Gentiles. He was just living out consistently what he had been practicing for a good time now. But then something happened that, that men came from Jerusalem and Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, James being mentioned here is a true believer, wrote the book of James, but apparently some of his followers, that the apple fell far from the tree, uh, that, that they were not fully understanding the implication of the gospel for these race relations in the church. And they were convinced that, that giving up the kosher laws of the Old Testament that fraternizing with Gentiles was this terrible, liberal, unbiblical practice that was going to undermine the very fabric of Christianity, that how are people going to take their Old Testament scriptures seriously if we can just throw it out? What are we going to throw out next if we're throwing out these ceremonial laws? And you can almost imagine them saying something like separate yet equal, that it's fine if Gentiles want to become Christians. I guess that's okay. As long as they kind of adopt my customs, eat my foods, behave like I behave. But I'm not going to eat with them. I'm not going to hang out with them. They're unclean. Putting it in a modern sense, they're saying, we're not going to share a water fountain with that kind of person. And unfortunately, Peter here, he's trying to accommodate these racist believers or so-called believers from Jerusalem. In verse 12, the second part, he says, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And this actually reminds me a lot of the the cafeteria scene. And I actually used this image a few weeks ago for a different purpose. But you can think of the, the new kid, maybe a freshman, shows up as a sitting at a table by himself And then one of the cool older kids comes and and sees him by himself and and goes and sits with him, and they're having some conversation. But then all of his friends come, and they sit at a different table, and he hears them laughing, and they're having a good time, and he's stuck there with this person he doesn't really know, who's maybe kind of awkward, the conversation isn't very good. And so he knows it's wrong, but gets up, goes, moves to the other table with everybody else, and leaves the one kid by himself. And he's doing it out of fear. He's, he's thinking, well, maybe these other kids will be laughing at me, or maybe they'll think there's something wrong with me, or maybe they'll think that, that I uh, am not cool, or maybe even they'll reject me and I won't have any friends, and then pretty soon I'll be sitting by myself as well. And this is very similar to, to what Peter was doing to the Gentiles in the Antioch community here. And we said... Peter, he believes that it's right and good to have table fellowship with Gentiles. He believes that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has torn down the divide, has, has done away with the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, that he can eat with them, that he's united to Christ, they're united to Christ, they're, they're brothers in Christ. He was sharing the Lord's Supper with them. He had communion with them. But then here he is, missing implications of the gospel. And so we can say Peter was a recovering hypocrite. But he's relapsing, right? Recovering, but relapsing into his former behavior. And he's not alone here that there are countless Christians throughout history who have known and loved the gospel, but then relapsed into inconsistency with the gospel. Uh, You could take somebody, Jonathan Edwards. Some of you know him, this great theologian 
in the 1700s. He, he's one of my favorite theologians. He was an amazing preacher. In the first great awakening, he helped lead countless people to faith in Christ. And it's similar, actually, to Peter. When you read his writings, he, he, he oozes and drips this love for Jesus. And you just see it on every page that he loved the gospel. And I've learned so much about the gospel from his writings. And in many ways, he was actually ahead of his time in seeing the implication of the gospel for race relations in the church. He wrote letters to the colonial government asking them to treat Native Americans fairly. And eventually he gave up a prosperous ministry and went as a missionary to Native American tribes and exerted a lot of energy there. And that's actually how he died. He, he died testing a smallpox inoculation in an attempt to try to help the people that he was ministering to. So again, the gospel and, and saw a lot of the implications. But then he also missed applications of the gospel for life. He had a household slave, an African-American slave. And by all accounts, he treated her well. But that's no excuse, that he participated in the enslavement of a human being. He didn't speak up about it. He didn't oppose the institution of slavery. And so we look at it and we say that he was like Peter. He's this recovering hypocrite who knew and loved the gospel, but then in major ways is failing to live out the implication of it. Now, for a second, though, I think it's important to, to step back and just say that, that the gospel isn't its implications. And I think that this kind of helps clarify the confusion because the, the gospel isn't racial reconciliation. The gospel isn't justice. The gospel isn't whatever we want to put there that we do, good actions. That the gospel is really what God has done for us in Christ. That it's not what we do, but it's what Jesus has done. It's the fact that we couldn't save ourselves, but that he lived the perfect life we couldn't live, that he died the sacrificial death in our place, that he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's coming again. And we don't receive that through our works, but we receive it by admitting we can't do it, trusting in him for everything that we have. And that's what the book of Galatians is fundamentally about. But as we've already said, what we do, these implications aren't the gospel but they inevitably flow out of it. They demonstrate it, that the gospel has powerful implications for every single aspect of life. It has implications for race. We've been saying that. For sex, for politics, for abortion, for marriage, for parenting, entertainment, family, work, friends, art. Every single sphere of life that the gospel speaks into, it makes a difference for it. It, it shapes how we live and how we, we, we view the world. And so it's really deeply practical. It's not just this abstract idea of what God has done in the past that doesn't at all impact us here today. And so when we repent and we trust in Jesus, yeah, immediately we're counted righteous in the sight of God. We are adopted into his family. Our sin is counted to him. His righteousness is counted to us. But we don't immediately see every implication of the gospel worked out, that we still miss implications. <laughs> and part, that's part of what the Christian life is actually about, is, is slowly growing more and more to see how does what I know that God has done for me work its way into this part of my life. That's why we pray. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we hear sermons. 
That's why we're in fellowship with other believers, because we're, we're trying to help expose these places where the gospel hasn't quite worked its way into that dark corner of our heart. And I think that what a great illustration of this is also a very overused illustration, so I hesitated to use it, but it's a good one. Um, that, so John Newton, who wrote the, the song Amazing Grace, he's constantly in sermon analogies. But sometimes there's a part of the story that people don't quite bring up. So he was a slave trader who carried men, women, and children from Africa to the New World, uh, brutal, committed atrocities. But then on one particularly rocky journey across the Atlantic, he heard the gospel. He saw the, the glory of Christ. He confessed his sin. He believed in Jesus, and it, it changed him, that he was brought from spiritual death to, to spiritual life. And then we, we would like to think, then, that immediately he realized, I shouldn't be on the slave ship. I'm quitting my job. I'm going to go do something else. But then he actually, as a born-again believer, continued working in the slave trade for quite a while, a number of years. And it, it took time for the, what he knew about the gospel to work its way into his understanding in that place. And eventually, by God's grace, it did, because he was a recovering hypocrite. And so he, he recovered and, and saw that, yeah, the gospel, is it, my faith is not consistent with the way that I'm living here. And so he, he changed. He ended up becoming a minister, a leading abolitionist. And his influence over William Wilberforce helped lead to the abolition of slavery in England. But the key point for us is that he lived for a while as a recovering hypocrite, that he was believing the gospel, loving the gospel, but then not seeing its implications. And it's, it's really the, the same for us here today, that we also struggle with hypocrisy. But we can struggle with hypocrisy in, in one of two ways. We could be a contented hypocrite who is just continuing down the path, unaware, not trying to change it. And if that's where you are, then it may actually call into the question whether or not you even understand the gospel. Maybe you think, I'm a Christian, but if that root of hypocrisy is there and there's no desire to change it, that is a dissonance that is really hard to maintain in somebody who really understands the gospel. But then there's also the person who is the, the recovering hypocrite, who knows and loves the gospel, but says, I see so many ways in my life that this isn't being worked out. And, oh, God, please work your Holy Spirit in me. Search me and know me. See if there's anything grievous within me and lead me in your paths. And so if you're showing up at church, then you shouldn't be surprised if you see hypocrisy. It's, if you go to a hospital, you're not surprised to see sick people. If you go to an AA meeting, you're not surprised to see alcoholics. And if you go to church, you're not surprised to see recovering hypocrites, that we still struggle with it. We all do. But that doesn't mean that hypocrisy is any less destructive or less dangerous, that unchecked hypocrisy can wreak spiritual havoc in the church. And this is also what we see in the next verse here in Galatians. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So everyone else is looking at Peter and saying, 
Well, he knows and loves the gospel. He's an inspired apostle. He knows what's going on. He has a great track record with Gentiles. So if he's separating himself from the Gentiles in the church, he's not eating with them, he's not hanging out with them, there must be something to this. And so they're following along. And I just can't imagine how painful this would have been for the believers in the Antioch church, the, the Gentile believers. I mean, imagine this, that, that they're these new believers. They haven't been Christians for very long. They didn't grow up in a religious home learning the scripture. They're new converts. And, and then they, they had this relationship with Peter. They were eating with him. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Uh, they thought that they, they, they knew him, that they liked him. He knew them. But then suddenly here he is just heading off, acting like he doesn't know them as soon as his friends show up from Jerusalem. And I'll bet you they were saying, well, I guess there's nothing to this Christianity thing. I mean, even Barnabas, who was a missionary to Gentiles, is heading off by himself too. So there, it's a bunch of hypocrites. And I think what I'm going to do is go out and found a Gentile-only church in Antioch. And it will be the first church split in church history. Or maybe if the apostle Peter isn't consistent, maybe the gospel doesn't make a difference for somebody's life, and so I should just have nothing to do with Christianity at all. And I'll bet you that some of you have felt that way at various times in the church, that you've been, been wounded by hypocrisy. And I'm really sorry for any ways that you have been wounded. And, and maybe you're the person who, who doesn't want anything to do with the church. Or maybe you're the person who is doubting the truth claims of Christianity. And I, I really sincerely believe that one of the biggest obstacles to Christian witness is actually hypocrisy among Christians. It's one of the biggest obstacles to, to people believing that, that a church can make a difference in their life or believing that that the beauty of the gospel is something that actually does matter. And so the hypocrisy, it, it wreaks havoc. And so we should never think of it as normal. We shouldn't accept it in ourselves. We shouldn't accept it in our community. We shouldn't accept it in our world. That it is really like that infected limb that if it's left to itself, it's going to continue to rot. And eventually, a limb might have to be amputated or somebody might actually die. And that's why... Recovering hypocrites need to be called out and constantly reminded of the gospel. And this is what we see then in the, these final verses here in Galatians. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here is Paul. He, he's looking at the situation, and he sees it for what it is. He, he's saying that I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and that it, it's causing division and, and destroying this little fledgling church. And so he speaks up. And, but, but notice how he does it in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So 
Paul doesn't spend hours outlining the history of division between Jews and Gentiles. He, he doesn't just focus on the, how hurt the Gentiles were in Antioch. And he could have even put a few jabs in it at Peter and said, hey, Peter, remember that time that you told Jesus that he shouldn't die on the cross? And he said, get behind me, Satan. Well, that's what I'm saying to you again. Get behind me, Satan. Or, or he could have said, oh, hey, Peter, remember that time that you, you know, denied Jesus three times while he was dying and when he needed you most? You're denying him right now through your actions. He could have said those things. But instead, he reminds Peter of the gospel. And he outlines what is called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we'll spend more time next week looking at verse 15 to the end of the chapter in more detail. But for now, just just notice what he's saying. He's saying, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he's saying, yeah, we might think of ourselves as being the good, moral, religious people. but, But we know that we're not saved by what we've done. We know that none of us are good enough to get into heaven through our own ceremonies or through our our own actions. That our being Jewish or being religious or following these ceremonies doesn't recommend us to God. That the only way any of us are going to be accepted in God's sight is by repenting and trusting in Christ. And that is how we're going to be counted righteous. And here, you are counted righteous, Peter, because you have trusted in Jesus despite your sin. I have been justified because I have trusted in Jesus despite my sin. These Gentiles have also repented and trusted in Christ. And so who are you then to say that God is accepting them into heaven, but I can't accept them at my table? Completely inconsistent with the gospel. And so Peter, he explains, he, well, he has the gospel explained to him. And Paul, he, he's, he isn't focusing on behavior. He's getting to the heart, to the root of exactly what Peter needed. And this is really a great model for us of what it looks like to confront hypocrisy, even here in Hope Church, in our own lives. So just as we wrap up, here are three thoughts just of how we begin to address this in our own lives and in our church. So first, when somebody's conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel, we should love them enough to say something. That sometimes we think that the most loving thing is to remain silent, but it's actually, it's not. That you're not loving the person who has this rotting hypocrisy that is going to destroy them. You're not loving the church that could be undermined by the hypocrisy if it continues. And so one of the most loving things can actually be to gently remind somebody of the gospel and how that actually should line up to the way that they're living their lives. But then second, when somebody's conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel, you should consider whether their sin is public or private because that will affect how you approach the situation. So if it's a, it's a private sin, then you address it privately. If somebody, say, in the church says something to you and they're a believer, but it just it was really wrong, you know that it wasn't right, wasn't consistent with their claim to be a Christian, then you don't immediately go to the whole church or start telling your friends or spread it around on Facebook or something like that. You go to the person and you follow what Jesus outlines in Matthew 18. You talk about it individually, lovingly, gently say, this is the gospel. This is how what you're doing isn't lining up with who you claim to be in Christ. If they don't listen, bring two or three along. 
and, and talk about it again. And eventually, it could become a matter for the whole church, but that's not the first step. But on the other hand, public sins can be handled publicly. And there, some people look at what Paul does here, and they say, well, was he violating what Jesus says? That he's just immediately in front of everybody, just calls Peter out publicly. He says, you know, I said it to his faith before them all. Uh, and so he's not, though, being inconsistent with Jesus' teaching. That what Peter is doing here, it's already a matter of public record. Everybody knows uh, that it's not, a, it's not a secret. And in, in many ways, it's something that's undermining the peace and unity of the church. And so the most loving thing he can do for Peter is actually to call it out in this moment. And this doesn't happen very often in the life of a church. So uh, it's not something that, that thankfully we have to do very often. But here's kind of a, a mild example of what it could look like, not as extreme as Antioch. That, that it, we're here after church someday, and there's people are, are standing around drinking coffee, and there's somebody who's clearly here, never been here before, and for whatever reason, everybody's ha talking, having a good time. This person is being left out. No one's talking to them. Well, that kind of behavior is not consistent with the truth of the gospel, that we should, Christ welcomes us into his kingdom freely. We should be welcoming to others. And so then it's not then something that you go say, all right, I'm going to put on my calendar and I'm going to meet privately with each of the people here and explain how two weeks ago they should have done something differently. Uh, but rather you can lovingly, gently, humbly go to them and say, hey, guys, I feel like we really need to model what it is to be welcoming to this other person over here. And most likely, they're, they're believers, and they'll say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we, we should have not, been, not just been focusing on ourselves, but should have been looking at those around us. But then finally, when somebody's conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel, don't simply try to guilt them. Don't just focus on their behavior. Don't act like you're, you're better than them. You are also a recovering hypocrite. But instead, point them to the place that actually has the power to change, the place that can actually make a difference in our lives, that follow Paul's model here, remind them of the gospel. Because the gospel, it has authority over Paul's life and over Peter's life and over my life and over your life. And it actually can make a difference. And this is why the gospel isn't just Christianity 101. You start here, you move on to something else eventually. But we return to the gospel over and over and over again because that's what we all need. That's how we, we begin to see places we're inconsistent. That's where it exposes our hearts. That's where we, we get this new lens and new ways to view the world. And that's actually why at Hope Church, every sermon we end with the gospel. And that's intentional. And it's not just so that people who haven't heard it before will hear it, but it's so that we, we all will hear it and that we, like Peter, who knew the gospel, hears it again and sees the implications for of it for it and is able then to begin to live that out more faithfully. And this is also why every service we end with the Lord's Supper. Because this is also a picture of the gospel. We hear the gospel in words and we see it here. That this is this hypocrisy shattering place that we know that Christ's body was broken for us. His, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That, that we can take all of our hypocrisy, all of our sin to Jesus, and he deals with it. And so that's why there really is hope for recovering hypocrites. That's why there's hope for you and there's hope for me, and that's why we're Hope Presbyterian Church.